Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Sandy Reese. Sandy is the Chief Encouragement Officer at Get Fully Funded and founder of ARF Club, a program that shows passionate nonprofit leaders how to fully fund their big vision so they can spend their time saving lives instead of worrying about money. She has helped dozens of small nonprofits go from nickel and dime fundraising to adding six or seven figures to their bottom line. As a trainer, she shows her students how to find ideal donors, connect with them through authentic messaging, and build relationships that stand the test of time so that fundraising becomes easy and predictable. She's an experienced presenter and has taught at the Best Friends Annual Conference, SAWA, Virginia Federation of Humane Societies, and more. Sandy is based in Loudoun, Tennessee, where she shares her home with her husband, two dogs, four cats, two horses, and a flock of wild turkeys. Find out more about her fundraising system at www.getfullyfunded.com and also www.arfclub.com. Sandy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> so, yes, today is a fundraising day. Woo-hoo. And woohoo! <laughs> I polled my listeners once about, oh, a couple months ago. And one of their greatest challenges is fundraising for their community cat program. So I'm hoping today you're going to be able to provide us with all the answers that we need in order to get the funds that we need to have in order to do the jobs that we're trying to do in our communities to help our community cats. And a lot of that surrounds fundraising for spaying and neutering. But first, I'd like to find out more about how did you get interested in fundraising, as well as interested in this passion of combining fundraising for animal welfare? Well, you know, I think I fell into it like a lot of people do. Back when I got started in the late 90s, there weren't schools or classes that you could take that would teach you how to be a a nonprofit manager or how to do fundraising. So I just kind of fell into it. I'd been doing marketing for a a staffing company in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I had an opportunity to go for a tour at the local rescue mission. And it really caught my eye. And I asked a lot of questions, I guess, and me being curious. And next thing I know, they asked me to join their board, Mm. which I did. (laughs) (laughs) Big surprise, right? Oh, can you be on our board? And then about a year later, they had a position that came open in their resource development office. And this was a good size organization. I looked at this job opening and I said, huh, that's marketing. You're just selling a warm fuzzy instead of a service. And so I talked to the president and he and I agreed that I had the the skill set. So I quit my job and I resigned from the board, jumped into fundraising at that organization. And I've never looked back. It was the most amazing thing. I finally felt like I was in the spot that I was supposed to be in and everything just clicked for me. I was able to apply a lot of what I knew about marketing in the corporate world to nonprofit and, and it really blossomed. It was kind of funny because I remember one of the jobs that I had, I kept looking over at the Humane Society like, man, I would love to go work with the animals. And it just never worked out for me. 
I worked at the rescue mission, the food bank. I worked at an after-school program that provided music lessons to kids who couldn't afford them. And uh, then in 2005 is when I took the plunge and started Get Fully Funded. And the nice thing about working for yourself is you get to pick your clients. And that's when I said, all right, now we're going to do animal rescue. Now we're going to help these groups who are incredibly passionate about saving animals, but they don't know how to do the fundraising. Uh, I always tell people that's the part I know how to do. And they say, good, because that's the part we hate. (laughs) (laughs) So just in the last probably five or six years, we have really done a lot of work with a lot of animal groups. Uh, About half of our clients right now are shelters or rescue groups of some kind. And it ranges from traditional dog and cats to community cats to senior dogs to house rabbit, guinea pig, farm animals, draft horses, you name it, we cover it. And it's a lot of fun. I I can't imagine doing anything else at this point. So you referenced marketing. How is marketing... You make it sound like it just sort of sits in there with fundraising, but yet you talk about uh, folks not really, you know, wanting to do fundraising at all. Why is fundraising such a scary thing? And how does marketing and fundraising all sort of fall together? I think that's a great question. What I see an awful lot of are people who are incredibly passionate about helping animals. And so they start a nonprofit and they get into it and then they go, oh, crap, now I got to raise money. And they don't know how to do it. And I really think that a lot of us have had a bad experience at some point with fundraising. And that's why a lot of people go, oh, I'll, I'll do anything you need me to do, but I'm not asking anybody for money. And if you think about a lot of times as children, especially those of us who went to public school, we were asked to participate in fundraisers. You know, the kind where the guy comes out and he gets everybody all whipped into a frenzy. If you sell this many candy bars, you get the T-shirt and your class gets the ice cream party. And we're all excited. Yeah. <laughs> And then we go home and we try to sell whatever it is, the calendars, the wrapping paper, the candles, whatever the thing is. We try to sell it and then we find out it's hard. And we find out that we have to ask a lot of people to hear yes. And honestly, after about the third or fourth ask where we're told no, we start feeling bad. We feel bad about ourselves. We feel bad about this whole business of, of fundraising and asking. And so we just resign ourselves to it's hard. It can't be done. I'm no good at it. I can't be successful. And we carry that stuff with us into our adult lives. And so then when we get involved in a nonprofit, all that stuff is just lingering in the back of our minds. And we're all like, no, <laughs> I'll clean cages. I'll set traps. I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do, but I'm not going to ask anybody for money. And the, the sad thing is if organizations don't have funds, it's very difficult to run the organization. You know, that's where you wind up with a founder who's paying for everything out of their own pocket, and that gets exhausting and expensive, and they can't do it. So one of the things that I try to do is help people reframe fundraising a little bit and not look at it as, quote, hitting somebody up for money, which is incredibly negative language to begin with, and fundraising is not a contact sport. We try to turn it into something where we see that, look, there are people out there who want to help. There are people out there that if they just knew what you were doing with the community cats, they would be very excited about it. There are tons of cat lovers out there. And if they knew what you were doing, they would want to help. So your job then becomes marketing. It becomes trying to identify those people who already love cats and they already can't stand the thought of any cat going hungry, any cat being injured and not being cared for, any cat being abused or neglected or left to deal with incredibly horrific situations. They already care about that. They just don't know that you're already doing it and that they can support your work 
by giving financially. So when we, when we can shift a little bit and go, Oh, fundraising is simply finding those people and connecting them to the life-saving work that your organization is doing. It's not about you. And it honestly, if you get in front of the right people with the right story, they're going to give. It's not hard to do. And a lot of times when we can make that little shift that little just change in how we think about it, it can get easier. Now, I'm not saying it's going to get easy. We certainly have some clients that it has gotten easy for, and they've been very successful, but it can get easier. And we can find people a place to participate in fundraising and be comfortable in their own skin while they're doing it. That's that's fantastic. And, and I find that when I'm working with some of the small nonprofits there, you know, just the, the money that's sort of like right next door, even asking their board members for donations They've sometimes not even done that or, you know, just even telling stories. As you say, if you tell the stories, you're going to be making folks really interested in wanting to contribute to the cause. When you're talking about working with small nonprofits, are we talking like all volunteer organizations or organizations that might have one or two employees? Are, are you sort of thinking in that range? And if let's take a case study, if you did have a small pro- nonprofit in front of you, you know, how would you launch them thinking about, you know, a fundraising plan where we're almost in 2018, you know, let's turn over a new leaf, let's create a fundraising plan, but yet we're all stressed out where, you know, we we're busy scooping those litter boxes and trapping those cats and, you know, we're out all night. So, you know, how do we make fundraising a priority and how do we plan for our next year of successful fundraising? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I do define small as everything from all volunteer to organizations that have a handful of staff and everything in between. We certainly have a number of people in our ARF club program who have organizations that are all volunteer. And, you know, we've got some that are foster based. We've got, uh, it just runs the gambit. And I think that the mission of those organizations is no less important than the ones where they have paid staff. And all of them need a fundraising plan. Because here's the deal if you don't have a plan, you're going to kind of drift through the year reacting to whatever happens to come along. And I'll tell you right now that there is no large fundraising success story that starts, oh, we were just floating along. (laughs) (laughs) They all start with, well, we decided what we wanted to do, and then we built a plan to do it, and we executed the plan. So the first step, if there were an organization in front of me right now, I would say, what do you want to accomplish in 2018? You got to get clear about that. And that may be, what's the number of cats that you want to take care of? How many do you want to TNR? How many do you, how many medical cases do you want, do you want to address? Get really clear about the service that you want to deliver and figure out what that's going to cost and then go put a plan in place that's going to help you raise that kind of money. That may stretch people a little bit. So if the most they've raised, let's say, is $10,000 and now they need to raise twenty five or fifty, that's going to stretch their thinking some and they've got to think in a different way than they've thought before. And they need to really be looking at things that can help them raise money that will be the intersection between their personal strengths, their organization's assets, and the goals that they want to reach. And one of the things that I'm really a big believer in is don't do what the organization down the road is doing. So don't copy the the shelter in town. What they do doesn't necessarily need to be the same thing that your organization does. So you want to 
really look at what makes sense for your organization. So for example, some organizations may be looking at building out a monthly giving program this year that may make a lot of sense for them. For your organization, that may not make sense for whatever reason. So you don't want to do something just because you've heard of it, just because there seems to be a lot of people doing it. You want to be very purposeful in choosing things that are going to work for you. So that's that's really how you want to think about putting a plan together and looking at the entire year. And then we actually have a tool on our website at it's getfullyfunded.com slash plan. And there's a one page fundraising plan that if you just fill that out and get an idea in a broad sense of the things that you want to accomplish during the year, here's what happens. It's so much easier to get volunteers because you know what's coming up next. It's easier to hand that plan to your board and say, where do you want to plug in? Which one of these things do you want to get behind and support with your time and with your resources? And it's easier to talk to donors about or or to talk to the community about the things that you're trying to accomplish. And they can see that, oh yeah, you do. You have your ducks in a row. You're serious about this. You are going to be successful in raising money. And a lot of people prefer to get behind an organization that really seems to have their act together. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. Let's make helping cats in your community easier. Join me and over 10 exceptional leaders for the first ever online cat conference. This virtual conference will be held January 26th through 28th, 2018, and will feature speakers like Brian Cordes of Neighborhood Cats, Hannah Shaw, the Kitten Lady, Katie Lisnick of the Humane Society of the United States, Nell Thompson from Getting to Zero in Australia, and many, many more. This is an affordable opportunity to learn from nationally and internationally known leaders in the field of community cat management and care. To find out more details, please go to www.communitycatspodcast.com and sign up today to register. Fees go up on December 1st. Let's make helping cats easier in your community. So a fundraising plan would include things like what mailings you're going to do, what events you're going to do? Would it also include what grant applications you're going to write or would that fall in a different place? No, I would include all that stuff. In fact, we have what we call the 110-1000 rule, which basically says do one event, plan one event for the year and do it really well, hit it out of the park and then don't do any more fundraising events. Now, um, you know, if you're doing adoption events or volunteer recruitment events, those are different, but fundraising events, do one, do it well, hit it out of the park go get 10 grants. Uh, Is 10 really a magic number? Well, not really, other than uh, we have grant writers on staff here, and we can almost always find 10 good grant opportunities. The point is, don't leave grant money on the table, because it's out there. There's spay-neuter grants out there. There's uh, grants for TNR out there. Go apply for them, because if you don't apply, you definitely won't get them. And then, so that's the one and the 10. And then the thousand is build your donor base up to about a thousand donors. Because when you do that, you're going to set yourself up for sustainable fundraising long term. When you have a thousand people and organizations and businesses around your organization that love what you're doing, they're going to give because they want to see you succeed. And they'll give this year and they'll give next year and the year after that. And the nice thing is then if you lose one donor, it's not a big deal. You've got 999 more. You can weather it. You can weather storms. You can handle whatever comes along because you have built you've built a base of stability for your organization to operate on. And how many mailings would you recommend that you do to that 
thousand person list? At least a couple during the year. And honestly, the, the important thing there is understanding that donors are not ATM machines. You can't <laughs> just show up and withdraw cash whenever you want to. They're people and they care about what you're doing. And what you want to do is build a relationship. You want to set it up so that people feel good about supporting your organization. And so what that means is you have to balance it. We call it the, the, the three to one ratio. You can ask as often as you want during the year, as long as you balance that one ask with three warm, juicy interactions so that people walk away from whatever that is going, wow, I love that group. They do such good work. So those warm, juicy interactions could be a newsletter, but it's got to be a well-done newsletter. It could be a, a really nice video update. It could be a card that they receive. It could be something else. But the point is they're non-asks. Think about it this way. I'm sure everybody's had a friend that the only time you heard from them was when they wanted something. Right. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's when you see the, the, the number on the caller ID and we all go, nope, not answering that. <laughs> well, we don't want to be that way to our donors. And if all we do is ask, if all we do is send out the emails asking, 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 hey, make a monthly gift, buy your ticket for our event, buy this T-shirt, buy the calendar, do this, do that. Like if that's all we do, we are that friend and people don't want to hear from us anymore. So we have to balance that we have to balance it with the stories and with the feel good stuff, with what we call warm touches so that when people do get the asks, they're feeling really good about your organization and they will give. So uh, with the advent and the growth of social media and the crowdfunding sites like you caring, it seems like a lot of the smaller organizations seem to rally around like a you caring or funding page where cat gets hit by a car, broken leg, needs $2,000 to repair the broken leg. You know, everybody freaks out and panics. Where are we going to get this money? And then they post this, you know, impassioned plea. And some organizations are very successful raising a lot of money that way. And other organizations, maybe not so much. You, you know, have to spend a lot of time massaging your social media and building it up. And I guess that's, the answering the why because of those kinds of campaigns, but then how do those campaigns impact your plan? Well, you know, you can't really plan for those medical cases. They're going to happen when they happen. And we know you've seen it. I've seen it. Listeners have seen it that when you have those, those very serious medical medical cases, you can go to Facebook and you can share that story and you're going to raise a ton of money. Most organizations that I work with raise, you know, like they'll need 2,500 for a, a surgery or whatever. And they raise like five or 6,000, which is fine. And then, you know, we put the rest of that in the medical fund for the next one that comes up. That is going to happen. And so what you have to do when you have those cases that pop up is you go back to your plan and you look at, okay, what, what is next on our fundraising plan? And if we go out right now and ask for this specific case, then we may have to adjust our plan in the next 30 to 60 days a little bit so that we're not asking right now for this medical case and then following up at two weeks with our planned appeal that, you know, the letter that we were going to put in the mail or the email that we were going to do. So you have to, you have to keep that plan out on your desk at all times and adjust it as you go. 
And honestly, that's one of the things that really gets some people hung up is they're afraid that when they put that plan in writing, all of a sudden it's carved in stone and it can't be adjusted. And that's not the case at all. You can, you can massage it as you need to through the year, because the truth is stuff is going to happen. You're going to do the best you can to plan and anticipate, but then you're always going to have the medical cases. You're going to have the random hurricanes. You're going to have the natural disasters. You're going to have things that happen that impact your ability to raise money. So having a plan and having it in writing, is it, it's like having a steering wheel on your car. It's going to help you move in the right direction and try to keep the car on the road so you don't wind up in the ditch halfway through the year, not able to raise the money that you need to deliver the services you're trying to deliver. And it's actually, it's important that that plan not end up on the bookshelf, not being looked at during the course of the year either. Well, that's right. We call that a binder activity. <laughs> <laughs> you go to all the trouble to put a plan together and then you stick it in a folder in a drawer or goes in a binder and you never look at it again, then what was the point? Uh, that was a, that's a ton of wasted time. When I have sat in the fundraiser's chair, you know, in the jobs that I had doing fundraising for various nonprofits, I, I went back and looked at my plan, usually two or three, if not four times a month, just to see, am I still on track? What's coming up next? What do I need to be thinking about for the next 30 days, 60 days, um, and constantly adjusting and course correcting. And I think that is really the key to success, not only in raising money in that particular year, but long-term because it gets you out of reactivity. When you, when you're working with a plan, you can be proactive instead of reactive and you can be much better prepared for whatever is going to show up that you're going to need to deal with and address. So Sandy, tell me a little bit about ARF Club and what specifically that does and how does it work? ARF Club is a ton of fun. It is a coaching training program that's meant specifically for small organizations, all those all-volunteer rescues and even the ones that have been around for a long time, but they just haven't gotten their fundraising legs underneath them. And what we do is we take a piece at a time of fundraising. We do a training every month. We have Q&A opportunities. We have a very active private Facebook group where folks talk about not only fundraising, but other things. They'll talk about software and issues about fostering and board development and all kinds of stuff. And the, the thing that I think is the, the, the most cool thing is it's all animal welfare. It's all animal groups. And so all the examples that we use and the samples that we share, they're all very relevant. And chances are really good because it's such a large group that you can find somebody else in the group who's doing what you're doing. And then you can ask them how they're doing it and what they've tried and what works for them. And I'm very purposeful about connecting people when like, if we had somebody today who joined, I'm going to go through and, and look and see, okay, who else in here is, uh, is doing community cats. Oh, uh, we got a cat sanctuary in like, uh, one of the Midwest States and let's look and see what they're doing. And then we'll find the other community cat groups. And it just, it helps people not be the Lone Ranger anymore. Yeah, feeling alone in this industry is, is the worst. There's so many ways now that you can connect and work together. And I find it, you know, so helpful, but I still find a lot of people who feel like they're just in this alone. Nobody else wants to do anything to help them. And it's, uh, it's really great to have so much more positive energy. Gosh, it is. And, and not only that, but I'll get the leads on the grants. We, we're sharing grant opportunities in there all the time or uh, new tools that we find that are going to be super helpful for animal groups. So it's just a way to get some ongoing training and support to keep fundraising front of mind so that it doesn't fall to the bottom of the priority list. And to, uh, just to have that community of people so you don't have to feel like you're in there slugging away by yourself. 
Yeah, yeah. So folks are interested in finding out more about the ARF Club or get fully funded. How would they do that? Well, ARF Club is easy. It's arfclub.com and you'll you'll find all the details about that. And that's specifically for ARF Club. Getfullyfunded.com has a wealth of information and resources. There's a, a blog with about five or 600 articles on it. We've got links to our YouTube channel where there are dozens of videos. There's a lot of information and resources at getfullyfunded.com and really encourage people to go take advantage of all of That's fantastic. That sounds great. I know I'm going to go over there. I'm going to check out that plan template. That's for sure. And for all the many groups that I've worked with, I'd love to share more resources with them too. And Sandy, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? You know, just uh, keep your keep your eyes focused on the prize as we head into the new year. Just remember that it's really easy to get in your head about all the stuff you're doing, but it's really, it's about the cats. It's about the animals. And if you can keep that front and center that everything you're doing is to help more cats, then that's going to really, uh, it's going to help keep you focused and help you move in the right direction. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fundraising fan. I've spent most of the last 25 years doing fundraising. I don't find it is challenging because we are all doing such great work, but it is, you know, capturing those stories, sharing the information and just being willing to kind of put it at the top of the list of things to do. It's very easy to say, oh, I can't do that today. But if you put it at the top of the list, you'll be able to do so much more for the cats in your community. So, Sandy, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show, and I hope we'll have you on in the future. I'm sure we could share a lot more on all aspects of fundraising. I'm sure we can. Thanks again for the invite. It was fun to be here today. The Community Cats podcast will soon be a year old with over 200 episodes profiling amazing people who are all making a difference in the lives of community cats. If you would like to support the show but not be a sponsor, feel free to contribute to our efforts by going to www.communitycatspodcast.com and follow the donate link. Help us to continue to provide excellent programming. 